Senator Roger Marshall is the junior senator from Kansas, and we are just thrilled to have him on the program here. Senator Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. Josh, I'm excited to be on with you today. We got some incredible topics that are near and dear to Americans, to you and me, and I I can't wait to dive down into the topics. Absolutely. And it's perfectly timed because you had a wonderful op-ed for us at Newsweek just this past week. The title of this op-ed is Joe Biden is the real threat to democracy. And I'm going to want to unpack that op-ed for sure for the for the listeners here but why don't we zoom out just a little bit here at the beginning so the op-ed is that joe biden is the real threat to democracy senator marshall i want to ask you just a question what is the single biggest threat not just to democracy what is the single biggest threat to america right now either foreign or domestic in your estimation oh my you know that is a a big question so i my quickly my mind the most immediate threat is our open border Long-term threat is our national debt. But I really think that there's a spiritual battle. And what I'm concerned about is being able to, or just our God-given constitutional rights are being attacked. If we get family right, if we get faith and education right, we're going to be just fine. So it's hard for me as you know the physician to say there's only one thing. So those are the three things that that I that I woke up this morning, you know, concerned about. Yeah, it's kind of an unfair gotcha question of sorts, but I, I did want your thoughts on because it's something that I find myself thinking about virtually every day at this point. And for what it's worth, you're speaking my language there when you speak about our spiritual crisis. I often say, Senator, and I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, and then we can move on to your op-ed, but I often say that if there's one thing where if I could just snap my fingers and that would be the closest that I could possibly come to a panacea to our woes, and as you know, there's no, there's no such thing as a panacea, but the closest thing I could think of would be to have exactly what you just said, which is a spiritual awakening, a new great awakening in America. I feel like if we can get Christians back in church, Jews back in authentic, God-fearing shuls and synagogues, this country is just going to be so much better virtually every way you look at that. So why don't you just comment on that, and then we'll go talk about the op-ed. Yeah, Josh, I'm just reminded when I was a senior in high school, I graduated first in my class and gave a valedictorian speech. And and the, the premise of my speech was is that God is first, my friends and family are second, and I am third. And that's kind of was a Gail Sayers quote, uh, a quote that was a movie that meant a lot to me in a book. But but really, you know, we're coming full, full circle now that there is an attack on our constitutional rights, including freedom of religion, freedom of speech. It's those basics. It's the fundamentals that we need to make sure we, we check the box off of. And we we do a a lot of uh, telephone town halls, did one last week with a bunch of seniors, like 4,000 seniors. And we said, what is your number one concern? Or or rank these in order, one, two, and three. And number one was the border. But number two was a concern about their constitutional rights. And the economy was third. But that constitutional rights part of this, that this this country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. I think there's going to be a theme to this discussion today. Hell, I'm still going back to fundamentals and using those those Christian Judeo-Christian values to formulate my decisions in which direction we're going. Uh, that there is a spiritual war that's ongoing here, and that our constitutional was designed to protect uh, those God-given rights. So I, I think that that is front and center. And, and is all what's on the menu for the White House, what they're attacking. And it's a constitution that, as you, of course, know, John Adams, he explicitly told us it was made only for a moral and religious people, said the great founding father, John Adams. He said that it is, quote, wholly inadequate for any other. And 
we have gone so far off the rails when it when it goes down that particular rabbit hole. And I, I certainly hope and indeed pray that we can start to turn it around here. But Senator, let's go talk about the op-ed. So this got a lot of traction for our publication in Newsweek. The Real Clear Politics website was showcasing it. So the title of the op-ed is Joe Biden is the real threat to democracy. And I think the reason that your piece got so much attention, Senator, is because you hear so much from the mainstream media. You hear so much from the liberal commentators on cable news, New York Times, Washington Post, about how Donald Trump is the threat to democracy. He's a dictator. He's a wannabe fascist. He's this or he's that. But you're arguing something that I've also argued, which is that if you peel under the lid a little bit, it's actually the other guy who's the real threat to democracy. So why don't you go ahead and explain your thinking a little bit? Yeah, so so Joe Biden is the real threat to democracy. It's interesting as he gets his campaign ramped up. Obviously, their theme uh, is that that Donald Trump is the threat to democracy, and then and then the other theme is going to be on the sanctity of life issue. But let's think about how Joe Biden is the threat to democracy. You know, where do we start? I think number one, to be a sovereign country, you have to have a secure border. That if you allow ten million people into this country. Um, just the threats are, are, are everywhere in so many ways. And then I think about the, the safety and security of this nation as well. If you, don't, if you don't follow the laws, if you don't have law and order, then you don't have democracy. You don't have a republic. So he constantly disregards the law. The Supreme Court tells him to not give out student loan money. Um, re- repayment without authorization by Congress. But he ignores that. And just just his blatant lack of respect for police officers, law enforcement officers as well. So he starts off with this attack that we're no longer a sovereign nation, that he puts other nations first. I I tell people the difference between being a patriot and a nationalist is a patriot is the one who loves their country first. A nationalist is a person who hates other countries. Uh, But but he's neither of those, of course. He, He puts other countries ahead of our own destroying what he is the threat to democracy. He attacks our God-given constitutional rights as well. And we could go on, but that's the start of it, is he is the threat to democracy because he doesn't have any law and order that we have open borders. We certainly do. And and that's a good place to take the conversation next. So, Senator Marshall, you've been very solid on the issue of immigration. You've you've been very outspoken on this issue. I'm an immigration hawk myself. I personally am very grateful for your work in this arena. That's kind of how I first got to know your legislative proposals and your policy initiatives is, is through the immigration issue. I've been very outspoken about this issue for a very long time now. And I guess my question to you is, as as someone who certainly also falls on the more hawkish, more border security side of the ledger when it comes to immigration, you know, this was an issue, Senator Marshall, that I'm sure you know, did not always unify Republicans. You've had Republicans who have been divided on the issue of immigration for a very long time. I, mean, I think back to when George W. Bush was president. He tried to to get through the Senate an amnesty package that you had some more open border senators, folks like your colleague Lindsey Graham, who were probably more supportive of. And then back then was actually Jeff Sessions, who ultimately became attorney general, uh, who helped kill that back when he was a senator from Alabama. So I, I guess my question to you, Senator, is. The situation at the border right now is genuinely unprecedented. The migrants that are flowing through these numbers, we've never seen numbers like this from Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol. Is this now a unified issue for the Republican Party, especially in the era of Donald Trump? Or do you still see in the cloakroom within the Senate Republican caucus, do you still see intellectual dissension? Do you still still see competing viewpoints when it comes to the issue of immigration? 
Right. I think the biggest difference between Josh today and five years or 10 years ago is that Republicans, everybody in my caucus sees this as a national security issue, that it is a humanitarian crisis. The fentanyl poisoning, 300 Americans dying every day. Human trafficking is way more than uh, we're talking about today. My staff just met with some ICE officers out in southwest Kansas earlier this morning, and there'll be news stories coming out just how horrible and, and, and expanded this human trafficking is as well. So I think it's the big difference is that it's a national security issue to us. Now, how do we fix a broken immigration system? I think that there would be some debate within our caucus. And just to put the explanation point on this, Joe Biden sees this totally as an immigration issue. And his goal is to get as many folks across the border as he can. However, it doesn't matter to him, even if he has to break the laws, that that's what his goal is. And that's why it's been so tough to have this conversation, that I don't negotiate with people who don't share the same goal with us that don't acknowledge the same problem. You know, the problem is it's a national security problem. You've yet to hear Joe Biden or Secretary Mayorkas say this is a national security issue. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And I think thinking of immigration as a national security issue is, as you say, it is a relatively new phenomenon. It wasn't that long ago where you typically heard immigration discussed as mostly an economic issue. You know, back in the day, that's why a lot of the labor unions were more restrictive on immigration was for basic wage control purposes. But I think nowadays people just see these images across their television screens. They they intuit in their bones that, that this is a national security phenomenon. I and mean, we see the headlines all the time about illegal aliens, MS-13, who knows who's coming in committing various criminal acts. So I, I think if you're not thinking of this in terms of national security terms, then you're totally out to lunch. And I guess that brings me to the other side of the aisle and, and your Democratic colleagues. What do you see and hear from them when it comes to just these images and these headlines? Again, the American people, when it comes to the pollsters, they say that they grossly disapprove of President Biden's handling of the immigration issue. But it, it doesn't seem like, from my perspective, it's moved the needle very much when it comes to Senate and House Democrats and their position on the border. But perhaps you have a different perspective on that. Yeah, so a little bit of both. So probably three to four months ago, Senate colleagues from across the aisle were whispering to me, we need to solve this border issue. We hope you all can solve the border issue. But now more and more, you're seeing a few Democrats uh, speak out to say, my gosh, this is a national security issue. Uh, Senator Maggie Hassan, uh, just this weekend on one of the national TV shows, calling this a crisis. Even Joe Biden now saying it's a crisis, right? So I, I, I do think that that uh, that this tsunami that we're seeing on the southern border, people are starting to recognize it as well. But again, Joe Biden doesn't want to solve the problem. He, he's going to say it's a problem now, but he's going to do everything he can to get as many people across the finish line into this country as he can. And I want to circle back to one point you made about the, the economic part of this. I think this is one more reason that union members and labor, traditional labor, is looking for a place to land right now, that the Democrat Party has left them. And as we have 10 million people come into this country that are willing to work for cash for you know pennies on the dollar, all of a sudden it is it will deflate uh, wages as well. So Joe Biden, once again, hypocrite. He says he's for labor unions, but this is definitely something that's anti-labor union as, as well. So there is an economic part to all of this. Again, I'm the physician. I see all these problems as one problem. I see the national security issue. I see the immigration issue. I see the labor issue. It's one big challenge. 
And at the end of the day, we're not leaving this better for the next generation. I don't know how anyone could sit here and say that, that the situation is better today than it was three years ago. Well, the labor issue is actually a great place to take the conversation because there's been so, so much ferment on the right ever since Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015, 2016. What is the Republican Party? Are we the party of, of Wall Street donors and fat cats? Or are we now this more nationalist populist party with a blue collar working class, more middle class voter base? And, you know, certainly in the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses last week, I think the answer to that is fairly definitive. And the labor union question really does come squarely into the folds here. And you have some colleagues there in the Senate Republican caucus, folks like Senator Rubio from my state of Florida, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Josh Hawley, who have been outspoken about the need to to reach out to labor unions. It, it, it's somewhat of a catch-22 because on the one hand, I think we would all agree that public sector unions, you know, even FDR, even FDR himself thought those were a bad idea. It's the government negotiating against itself to fleece the taxpayer. But private sector labor unions, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea at all. The, I guess the problem, Senator, is that if you look at the AFL-CIO and so many of these big unions, they've just been so dominated by thuggish democratic politics and wokeism in, in more recent years. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? What is the opportunity for Republicans to actually make inroads with 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 union members? Yeah. So for, so first of all, I, I grew up as a farm kid, hardworking family members in the in the union at the refinery. Um, I've always been pro pro labor, pro union and I'm pro business. Yeah, I'm always looking for the win win opportunity. But let me tell you when the union started looking and that's when they started with the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates, uh, all those things. What you're going to find with union workers is they have a pretty large libertarian streak down them. You know, they'd be very happy to go work for eight or 10 hours, get sweaty, get dirty. But they want to go home. They want to drive their truck. They want to have a a, a rifle in the back seat and and strapping a pistol. They want to be left alone by the federal government. So when Joe Biden started his his uh, entourage have taken away attacking the Second Amendment and all these mandates. The unions came to me and said, my gosh, you're you're shutting you're, you're not letting us work um, and you're giving us all these mandates. You're going to say I can't work at I can't keep the nuclear plant in Wolf Creek in Kansas open because I'm not going to get a vaccine. And I've already had this virus three times. What what's the purpose of the vaccine? So those people became my friends as well, because I was already fighting for all those particular issues. And then it's just morphed into that, as, as you're alluding to right now, the Democrat Party has become the party of, of, of elitist, overeducated pontiffs that think they're God, really at its base. Whatever issue we talk about, you know, the biggest sin is pride that the Democrat Party thinks that they know what's best for you, your family, your children. Um, just the opposite of what this country was founded upon. So we, we've been making a huge uh, relationship with the unions. We don't agree with them on everything. And typically it's our leadership that we don't agree with on some issues. But the rank and file members are my people. Those are the people that, that I go hunting and fishing with and enjoy a cup of coffee with. They are our people. And I, I, I'm very passionate about the idea that Republicans have to reach out to them. And I, I've been really encouraged in recent years by seeing uh, policy proposals and, and speeches and conferences by by many prominent Republicans starting to intuit that it, it is a really really far cry from the Republican Party of twenty twenty five years ago and I think that that is actually a very healthy thing for the republic. 
Uh, so we're joined here again by Senator Roger Marshall, the junior senator from the great state of Kansas. Senator Marshall, I want to circle back to your to your Newsweek op-ed because there's just so much in here. Again, the title of this op-ed, which I would encourage everyone to check out, is Joe Biden is the real threat to democracy. And towards the end of, of the piece, you reference the the ill-fated so-called disinformation governance board, which, as you accurately note, is a, quote, dystopian program to give unelected government bureaucrats the authority to determine what the American people can say online. This is very similar to a case currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court called Missouri versus Biden, which involves unprecedented efforts from the federal government working hand in glove with the Silicon Valley oligarchs for the big tech companies to suppress speech. Senator, this is an issue that I've spoken about at great length, which is this blob where you have the public sector and the private sector essentially colluding to crack down on what Hillary Clinton infamously referred to as the deplorables. This is, I think, one of the absolute most dangerous issues, this merging of the public and the private. There's no longer a distinction between the two. How do you see it from your vantage point? This is one of my my biggest concerns, this threat to our Constitution. Um, Josh, I was the first person in Congress to speak out that COVID virus originated in China. I did that the third week in January, was the first member in Congress to call Dr. Fauci out that vaccine mandates didn't make sense, that masks don't make that didn't make sense, shutting down everything didn't make any sense to me. And I, and I was censored. As a physician, I've taken care of thousands of women with virus. I'm an obstetrician, taking care of thousands of women with viruses. I uh, was overseeing three health departments. And to think that the solution that was going to work in Washington, D.C. was going to be the same solution in, in rural America was uh, just uh, uh, just uh, I couldn't believe it. That we're that everything that we've been taught in medical school, that that you throw out a theory and then you're supposed to try and disprove it. And you accept other people's critique. But Lord Fauci said this is the way, the only way. And now he's walking it back, of course, uh, if he even admits to it. So I think that was the beginning of the end. And and then they doubled down in so many ways where they were actively the White House was actively working with social media and doing the censoring. And even today, I think that's still going on, that the White House is part of this uh, elite teams. Well, they, I guess there's folks now that actually subcontract out to to be the the uh, censoring police and how they're. Those folks are being influenced. So we're just starting to dive into that group of folks and see what we can do to make a dent in in that problem as well. But I'm very concerned. And and this freedom of speech and freedom of religion, to me, again, they go together. I think it's the same challenge before us. Uh, As a doctor by training, how how much do you worry that the medical profession in general has been tarred and feathered quite a bit and has taken a beating by what happened during COVID-19. Your outspokenness against Anthony Fauci and his bureaucrats at NIH is strongly, strongly appreciated. But how much do you worry that Americans have lost faith in the medical profession based on what we just endured? Yeah, I I think that America has lost faith in the CDC and the NIH. I still think that they trust their local pharmacists. I think they trust their local physicians. But they but even the local physicians know that if they don't follow this, you know, federal government mandates, that they're going to have their license threatened, which I have as well. Um, so we're, we're so it's hard to speak out on it. You know, long covid, uh, you know, it's, it's the answer to, at the federal level is vaccine, vaccine, vaccines. We just had a great hearing up here on long covid. The CDC and NIH not doing any really 
meaningful studies or treatments for people with long COVID. Why? Oh my gosh, because that might imply that this virus came from China and would be bad, you know, bad for the relationship with China. So, um, but to your point, doctors are leaving in groves. They've, if you were close to retirement, they're retiring now. Those folks that could, could have retired two years ago have retired. We worked our tails off. We responded to the to the sound of the of the war once again. Went to the emergency room, put our own safety aside, the health of our own families aside, treated these patients. And now, by the way, the federal government's going to cut doctors' wages three percent. Um, so, so doctors couldn't be more frustrated. Nursing shortages, all those things are, are very real. But part of the reason was just this additive. Um, challenges that the federal government has given us and really just the disrespect that they've given to us in so many ways. You know, we're not machines. Um, There's a reason we call it the practice of medicine. And it it is just so so frustrating. I, you know, I 29 year old woman with three kids and metastatic breast cancer, I would send her for three doctors and get three opinions. That's because it's not black or white. And my job was to say, okay, of all these opinions, this is what I think is best for you. I know you as an individual um, just couldn't be more frustrated. So let's let's say on the on the medical issue. So one issue that you have been very outspoken on, given your 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 medical background, is the transgender phenomenon and perhaps so-called gender ideology. More generally speaking, that's certainly an issue that has been a leitmotif on on this particular show over the past two years. We've had any number of folks on here to speak up against the transgender issue and the threat that I and so many others, including yourself, think that it is. Uh, Senator, putting on your, your MD cap, putting on your prescribing, your prescription, your diagnosis hat, what do you actually think is going on when you look at these statistics showing that a shockingly high percentage of Gen Z, the youngsters, are now self-identifying as trans? You know, Abigail Schreier wrote a whole book on this where she re- referred to it as a social contagion. That That's probably what I would personally choose, but I'm not the doctor. You are, sir. So I'm kind of curious how you would think to describe it. Yeah. You know, I think the first thing I would you know, ask any parent, would you let your 14-year-old go get a huge tattoo of something, something, right? And here we're allowing 14-year-olds to make life-changing decisions, irreversible decisions. In the case of our HHS assistant secretary doing it without the without parental permission, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I want to go back to the why of this, because uh, I have given a lot of thought. And I think ultimately this transgender issue is an assault on our Judeo-Christian values that you and I were raised to believe that we were made in the image of God, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But here's this elite group of folks that say, and they are God, that, 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 that God made a mistake and that you get to choose your gender. Uh, to me, it, it ultimately it's an insult uh, to, to people's faith. You know, as the doctor in the house, I took care of so many young ladies in these very critical moments between ages 13 and 17 as they're going through puberty. And, you know, most of the time I'd see them when they're 25 and 27 and they came out on the other end just fine. And I always told the parents, you know, let's try to get them through this time with this least scar tissue as possible. Scar tissue to mean meaning uh, sexually transmitted diseases that are not curable. Of course, pregnancy, um, addictions, all those types of things that, you know, I, I would encourage them to hang in there. 
But here you have a group of people that even just given these medications are most of the, they're irreversible. Once a woman starts growing a beard, even though they stop the medicine, they're going to keep growing a beard. If they have any of these surgeries, they're permanently scarred. This is child abuse is what it is. I think it is absolutely child abuse as a physician. You know, again, girls coming into me and their adolescents wanting this and they wanting that. And I won't, you know, I think it's a little bit too deep to go into on a, on a, on a podcast like this. But I would always say, look, let's go do something that's permanently irreversible. And I still think once these young men and young women have their own natural hormones kick in, that they're going to have a different view. And, and I, I really think that three, four, seven would say would regret any type of irreversible decisions that they made. I think that this is a fad. And I think it's elitist uh, thinking again that they are God, that they know what's best for you. So I think that I think that 100 years from now, this will be compared to blood, you know, leech leeches doing bloodletting that they that future generations won't believe that we allowed this to happen. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It fundamentally is a rejection of the Judeo-Christian foundation of not just America, but of Western civilization. It is the flippant flipping of one's two middle fingers at the very idea rooted in Genesis, as you said, that we are all made in God's image, male and female. He created them. We know that right there from the Bible. And we know that also not just from Scripture. We also just know that from common sense. And and by the way, from science itself. I mean, how bitterly ironic is it from the so-called trust the science crowd. You know, we know that you have XX or XY chromosomal structure and, and that chromosomal structure stays with you until the end of, of your life in this mortal realm. So it's just brutally, brutally ironic and dare I say quite a bit hypocritical on, on those grounds as well. One just quick public policy question for you following following up on that. It's fairly straightforward what many legislators and governors at, at the state level can do when it comes to trying to curtail these Orwellian medical pseudo practices. They can just straight up ban these procedures or things of that nature. What, what can the federal government do? How much room is there for the U.S. Congress and the executive branch to actually try to reverse this terrible social trend? Yeah, well, certainly we've introduced multiple pieces of legislation to stop the federal government uh, in, in their tracks. And I'll give you a for instance. The Biden administration wants to take away school lunches if your school does not allow biological boys to compete against girls. So we're, we're continuing to push back on those types of issues and get Democrats on the record. And we have uh, on, on, on issues like that, we were using what's called a congressional review back over and over as we try to reverse multiple Biden rules regarding uh, this issue. So but it's, it's tough uh, when, when possible. Let's let the local folks uh, figure out what's what's best for them. I, I think it's just a matter of trying to stop the Biden administration right in their tracks at, at every point that we can. But it, it's a it's an uphill battle right now. That's why elections are so important. Right. Elections are so important. Um this administration constantly attacks us. By the way, we're leading the league up here in veto threats and and vetoes by the president as we push back on some of these same issues. Well, you took the words out of my mouth, Senator, because you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to keep you for too much longer. So why don't we go out of here on this? And you alluded to the importance of elections and how they have consequences. And I, I, I firmly agree with that. So it looks like after the Iowa caucuses that the Republicans have their nominee this fall, it's going to be Donald Trump. I have said that if he's going to be the nominee, and it certainly appears that, that, that he will be, that I recommended that he focus primarily on three very straightforward bread and butter issues 
that impact the day-to-day lives of the American voters in a very tangible way. That would be the immigration issue, which we very much touched on earlier on this show, as well as the crime and economy issues. I'm curious what what your advice would be, given that elections have consequences, and this is a very, very important election cycle of both the presidential and, of course, the Senate as well. The Republicans have a solid chance of recapturing the Senate, given the very favorable map. What are the issues you think that the party needs to focus on as we head towards November of this year? Yeah, I think this is an easy question. Over six months ago, based upon all the town halls we've been doing, we said that the border issue would be the number one deciding factor of this uh, presidential election. That it's a very emotional issue for people. This is what people are worried about. And I think when we talk about the, the border issue, it's really I'm talking about your safety and security of your family whether it's cashless bail, um, all, all those types of things, just disrespect for the for law and order. So I think that is absolutely the, the number one issue out there. I think that protecting our constitutional rights is going to keep rising, whether it's 2A or 2B, I don't know. And then the economy. And I think what, and when I think about the economy, uh, I think about I- issues of inflation. I think about energy issues as, as well. But I think that's it. I think that people want to be safe and secure. They want to be able to practice their own faith. They want to have freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And then they would like to make a living to to bring back, um, you know, the American dream. The American dream for most of us was to have a job where we could support our family and buy a home. Under Joe Biden, mortgage rates have doubled. Uh, Your mortgage payments have doubled. So Donald Trump has proven time after time the great things that he can do. And, you know, he gave us secure borders. Our enemies feared us and our friends respected us as well. So I, I think that I think that's it right there. Border safety, security, constitutional rights and the economy. Well, it seems like you and I are 100 percent on the same page there. So Roger Marshall is the junior U.S. senator from the great state of Kansas. Sir, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you at great length on this show. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You bet, Josh. I, I enjoyed uh, the, the conversation so much. Wishing you and your listeners the best. God bless you, sir.